Whoa, immigration and John Bolton's new book. You sure you want to do this? Let get a little controversial? Well, there's also baseball. Let's do it. Hey friends, welcome to the Press Club C Podcast. I'm Ray Keating. This 15th episode is brought to you by three, count of three of my Pastor Stephen Grant books, Murderer's Row, Deep Rough, and The Traitor. More on those later. In this episode, let's look at, we're going to look at, immigration, John Bolton's new book, The Room Where It Happened, or at least some excerpts that have been published in the media, as well as the latest on trying to bring back baseball. But first, let's quickly answer that key question once more. What the heck is Press Club C anyway? Each letter stands for stuff we talk about on this podcast. P is for politics. R is for religion, mainly Christianity. E, economics. S, sports. The second S there, stories, books, and writing my own books, other people's books, authors, etc. C is for culture, pop culture and otherwise. L is for life, the big catch-all. U is for understanding, lessons, in history, education, and so on. B is for business and entrepreneurship. And the final C in Press Club C is conservative. Why? Because I am one. And while we talk tonight, I have the window open in the home office because it's wonderful outside. And if I closed it, I would be too darn hot. So there will be cars going by in the background. Uh, please Bear with me on that. So, first let's dive into the issue of immigration. The issue that just will not go away and just keeps giving or taking, depending on your perspective. So, first off, let's a little, you know, a little uh, foundational stuff here. Um, you know, immigration, the immigration controversy allows uh, really politicians to pander on both sides of the aisle. Uh, it's highly controversial from a political perspective, but if you understand the economics of immigration, it's really not controversial at all. You know, immigration, bottom line, is an economic plus for a variety of reasons. Let's just touch on a few of them. Number one, immigration allows um, market demands for both low-skilled and high-skilled labor to be met. So that demand comes from businesses that ultimately serve consumers. Um, second, other workers, um, and this is a point that needs to be driven home that a lot of people either ignore or don't understand, other workers, including the native-born benefit, as immigrants do complementary work, and therefore uh, productivity is boosted for all workers. Uh, and by the way, it is interesting to look at the numbers. Immigrants have higher labor force participation rates and higher employment population rates uh, than the general public and more so than the native born. So that's kind of interesting. Um, uh, third, uh, immigrants are risk takers. They, they obviously are leaving your home country for another is a serious uh, risk taking um, adventure, if you will. And it's not surprising that immigrants then have a higher rate of entrepreneurship than do the native-born. Actually, it's twice as high. It's twice the rate. Entrepreneurs have twice the rate um, 
of entrepreneurship as do the native born. So if we want more entrepreneurship, and we definitely do, um, immigration is a key source of that. Um, also, you know, it follows that uh, more immigrants in the workforce mean more consumers. Um, all good stuff. And um, it's also important to point out um, some other key point, key facts or um, phenomenon related to immigration that people don't normally recognize again. Richard Vetter, he's a, uh, a professor of economics emeritus at Ohio University. He's done great stuff on economic growth, immigration, all sorts of things over the years, healthcare. Um, and in a study he wrote, um, I'm going to quote a couple things he, he wrote real quick. First off, um, he wrote, it turns out that periods of dynamic economic growth and change have roughly coincided with surges in immigration. In part, of course, immigration responds to improved economic conditions, but the evidence strongly suggests that the, re the reverse is also true. Growing immigration has added to the nation's economic vitality and entrepreneurial spirit and has propelled the nation toward higher rates of economic growth, close quote. That's pretty critical these days. Um, and also... When you're, ex when you're examining the effects of immigration, you can't stop with just the immigrants themselves. You have to look at the full picture. So Vetter also points out, and I quote, the children of immigrants are the most productive generation of all, typically with income and wealth exceeding that of the general population. So as much as politically, particularly among certain groups, it's not popular to say but the reality is, is that immigration is an economic plus. Now, this leads us over to some issues that are going on right now. And, and I just don't get some of them. I, I mean, I, I understand who Donald Trump is and, and what he's, um, his political decisions. I don't agree with them in terms of immigration, but at least I understand why he does it, um, cynically so. But um, this whole um, DACA thing. Um, so the Supreme Court blocked Trump's effort to end this program, which um, is is essentially, it was instituted by Obama in 2012, provides protection from deportation, and it provides work permits for people who arrived in the U.S. before they turned 16. They have to satisfy other conditions, being a student or, or graduate and having no um, criminal record. Um, and they can renew it, um, the... The work permit every every two years. Now, um, it's kind of I, I never understood, even with the anti-immigration crowd, why you would pick on this group uh, out of everybody. I mean, this is a people that came to the country um, before they were sixteen. This is a they're essentially for the most part have no knowledge of the countries where their parents came from or parent came from. Um, they they're Americans. I mean that. Plain and simple, um, and uh, they don't know what the deal is in this other country and why we'd want to pick on them in particular in this immigration debate makes no sense. And actually, I think the polls show pretty strong support for uh, keeping this around, this program around. But nonetheless, the Trump administration decided to try to get rid of it. Uh, the Supreme Court, 5-4 to four decision, um, said no. And, and I'm not going to get into the reasons for the Supreme Court. It was very, very narrow. 
in terms of how they decided it. They basically said that, yeah, you could get rid of this program, but you have to give sound reasons, and we're not seeing sound reasons. So, okay, whatever. I'm not here to discuss or debate the, the court's opinion. It's more of a, why the heck are we doing this in the first place? It was kind of interesting. Uh, one, one thing that I think it was the Wall Street Journal, somebody quoted, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who, was, who dissented, but he, um, he zeroed in on, in his dissenting opinion on Congress, um, talking about their inability to address the status of these young immigrants. And he said, uh, that's forced successive administrations to improvise, thereby triggering many rounds of relentless litigation with the prospect of more litigation to come. And he's right, of course. Congress does need to step up and clarify the law here. And again, you can debate um, whether Obama had the right to do it in the first place and, uh, you know, about Trump's decision to unwind it. But from a basic, um, I think, common sense, human rights and economic standpoint, um, I don't think this is the hill uh, to, to, to engage this battle on. It just doesn't make much sense. And then also there's rumors heading into this weekend that um, uh, the president may extend, or permanently extend perhaps, um, the, uh, the uh, rules on limiting high-skilled and seasonal work visas. Um, again, when you look at the reality of the marketplace and even in this economy, um, we don't want to be limiting, artificially limiting areas where um, our labor force is not meeting needs clearly on both ends in terms of seasonal workers and in terms of uh, highly skilled workers and also in terms of, you know, those highly skilled workers staying here and be often becoming entrepreneurs and, and, and driving economic growth, helping drive economic growth and so on. Again, the economics are pretty straightforward here. It's, it's unfortunately, uh, this issue has been so wrapped up in politics for so long. Um, it's hard to get clarity on it. Um, I think, and, and this is where we economists have to step up and, and make, uh, things clear. But, um, it's, it, Again, if, if you look at the economics, it's pretty darn clear that, um, again, immigration is a plus. And when you look at particularly the, the demand for highly skilled workers is, is still, you know, once we get past this pandemic related recession and it is brutal, um, it, we're going to, we're going to be quickly back to, um, to, well, we're already there. We still need these highly skilled workers. There just aren't enough of them in the United States. And there still aren't people willing to do the hard, brutal seasonal work that a lot of immigrants are. So, you know, if you want the economy to grow, if we want high-tech jobs uh, to stay here in the U.S. and we want jobs like that created, um, you don't want to be limiting, for example, high-skilled workers. Um, that's that's just bad economics, and it's gonna it's gonna cost us. And if you look at uh, a great deal of that's what happened. A great deal of what's happened recently, outside of the pandemic, in terms of slow economic growth. Actually, when you look at the numbers, uh, which I did the other day, the demographics are stunning. When you look at the population, working age population, twenty five years old to fifty four years old, right? That main group um, that has not grown in the United States from December of two thousand seven to May of this year. 
it's ex at exactly the same number. No growth whatsoever. Um, if you expand it to, I think it's, um, I want to say 16 to 64-year-olds, it's only grown by 5% over that 13-year period. So that's, that is a serious constraint on business, on investment, on entrepreneurship, and on economic growth. So that's the reality, folks, whether you like it or not, um, on the immigration front. Now, let's switch gears to another controversial topic very quickly. Um, it's John Bolton book. Um, you know, the, of course, the, the, the White House is trying to stop its publication. Copies have already been distributed to booksellers all across the world. Um, you know, the argument from the Trump administration is that there are national security secrets that are being revealed in this book. I don't buy it. Um, <laughs> quite frankly, my immediate reaction was, you look at John Bolton. Now, I, I agree with John Bolton a lot. I disagree with him at times, certainly. But um, there has never been any evidence uh, throughout his career that he would risk um, exposing national secrets. Um, he's, he's the guy on the other side. He makes sure that people don't. <laughs> um, so the notion that he is somehow or another revealing national secrets is simply absurd. It's, it's, you know, it's a kind of a late-in-the-game political stab from apparently a very nervous president and administration um, to try to stop this book. It, it looks bad. And, oh, yeah, there's that little thing called free speech and so on. So it's very, um, it's, it's bewildering. I and mean, quite frankly, I trust John Bolton with national secrets more so than I would uh, Donald Trump. But anyway, um, I wasn't quite sure what to do with this, but I didn't, you know, I, I read an excerpt in of the book in the Wall Street Journal. And there are things here that I'm going to be, Perfectly honest, they don't surprise me, but I think they would surprise a lot of people. And I, I don't buy the argument that Bolton is lying. Again, when you look at his career, there's no evidence that that's who he is or that's what he would do. So I'm going to read. I, I highlighted nine very brief excerpts from this piece that come from the uh, from the book. I just want to lay these out here, give my quick reaction, but have people think about it. So first off, he's talking about... Uh, a meeting in Buenos Aires uh, in early December 2018, right? The uh, G20 summit. So he writes, Trump ad-libbed. He's talking about his meeting with uh, Xi Jinping, the president of China. Um, so here's what Bolton writes. Trump ad-libbed with no one on the U.S. side knowing what he would say from one minute to the next. One highlight came when Xi said he wanted to work with Trump for six more years, and Trump replied that people were saying that the two-term constitutional limit on presidents should be repealed for him. Xi said the U.S. had too many elections because he didn't uh, want to switch away from Trump, who nodded approvingly. You know what? I, I, I think these things speak for themselves. I'm not even going to comment. I'm just going to leave it out there. Uh, number two, this is the second uh, point, very brief, that's worth uh, mentioning. When he's talking to... President uh, Xi. Trump asked merely for some increases in Chinese farm product purchases to help with the crucial farm state vote. If that could be agreed, all the U.S. tariffs would be reduced. It was breathtaking. Bolton writes. Um, here's from a meeting in Osaka, Japan in June, late June of 2019. Again, Trump talking to Xi. 
Trump then stunningly uh, turned the conversation to the coming U.S. presidential election, alluding to China's economic capability and pleading with Xi to ensure he'd win. He stressed the importance of farmers and increased Chinese purchases of soybeans and wheat in the electoral outcome. I would print Trump's exact words, but the government's pre-publication review process has decided otherwise. What do you do with that, folks? Uh, Number four, Trump's conversations with Xi reflected not only the incoherence in his trade policy, but also the confluence in Trump's mind of his own political interests and U.S. national interests. Trump commingled the personal and the national, not just on trade questions, but across the whole field of national security. I am hard-pressed to identify any significant Trump decision during my White House tenure that wasn't driven by re-election calculations. Uh, you could say that, you know, they're all politicians, but that's... I don't... Uh, anyway, I'll leave it alone. Okay, um, number five. Uh, now, this is in, uh, <clears throat> again, June 2019. As the trade talks went on, Hong Kong's dissatisfaction over China's bullying had been growing. An extradition bill provided the spark, and by early June 2019, massive protests were underway in Hong Kong. I first heard Trump react on June 12th upon hearing that some 1.5 million people had been at Sunday's demonstrations. And he's quoting Trump, that's a big deal, uh, he said. But he immediately added, quote, I don't want to get involved, close quote. And, quote, we have human rights problems, too, close quote. Distressing to hear a, United, a president of the United States uh, say something like that. A little bit later, another on, on the 30th anniversary of China's massacre of pro-democracy demonstrators in Tiananmen Square, Trump refused to issue a White House statement. Quote, that was 15 years ago, he said, inaccurately. Um, he continu- Trump continued, who cares about it? I'm trying to make a deal. I don't want anything, close quote. And that was that. Number seven. Um, and they get more distressing, I think, as they go along here. Um, Bolton writes, at the opening dinner of the Osaka G20 meeting in June 2019 with only interpreters president, Xi had explained to Trump why he was basically building concentration camps in Xinjiang. According to our interpreter, Trump said that Xi should go ahead with building the camps, which Trump thought was exactly the right thing to do. The National Security Council's top Asia staffer, Matthew Pottinger, told me that Trump said something very similar during his November 2017 trip to China. Wow. Uh, The eighth one here is about Taiwan. Uh, Bolton writes, One of Trump's favorite comparisons was to point the tip of one of his Sharpies and say, This is Taiwan. Then point to the historic Resolute Desk in the Oval Office and say, this is China. So much for American commitments and obligations to another Democratic ally, Bolton adds. And finally, the last excerpt, little excerpt that I'll read is Bolton saying, his administration has signaled that Beijing's suppression of dissent in Hong Kong will have consequences, but no actual consequences have yet been imposed. There you go, folks. I mean, again, um, 
I don't, I don't, I've never seen John Bolton uh, as a liar. You can disagree with him, you can debate him, um, but I don't see him as a liar. So take that for what it is. Um, hey, listen, talking about China, um, two of my books, my novels, Pastor Stephen Grant novels, deal with it. When it comes to troubles and dangers with China, life imitates art, or art imitates, li- imitates life. That's the question. Either way, uh, the two most recent Pastor Stephen Grant novels, my two most recent, Deep Rough and The Traitor, uh, feature oppression from Chinese communists imposed upon the church and on Hong Kong. It also um, opens... One of, the book op- one of the books opens with uh, the massacre at Tiananmen Square, and it's based on um, fictional characters, but based on what happened. Um, hey, by the way, each books have re- each book has received um, thumbs up re- uh, thumbs up from reviewers. Uh, let me note two real quick on Deep Rough. Top shelf reviews give it five stars. Uh, they said Keating is a clear master at his craft, and Deep Ref is is proof he's mastered the game. Well, thank you, Top Shelf Reviews. And on The Trader, uh, self-publishing review gave it four and a half stars. Um, and since author Ray Keating delivers a timely, high-octane, and well-penned thriller with his latest novel, The Trader. Again, thanks, self-publishing review. Guys, you can get, um, guys and gals, you can get paperbacks and Kindle editions of these two books over at Amazon.com or sign books at RayKeatingOnline.com. So please check them out. Now, the last issue I want to touch on uh, to get a little lighter uh, compared to immigration and and uh, John Bolton's book, China and Donald Trump, is, is baseball. When is it coming back? What's going on? So, um, you know, as I am recording this podcast um, on... Wednesday, June 17th, Major League Baseball made a proposal for a 60-game season to the player so Players Association, and that featured prorated pay for the players. That was something the union was pushing for. Um, the Players Union came back on Thursday with a counter-proposal that called for a 70-game uh, season. So there's, you know, all sorts of reports. ESPN is saying that the league probably won't accept this latest proposal. Somebody, Ken Rosenthal over at The Athletic, um, said he did expect a deal. You know, he's writing on Thursday afternoon, June 18th, and he said uh, he thinks a deal will happen within 48 hours. It better, because we're running out of time here. But uh, it's worth highlighting, I think CBS Sports summarized this a little bit, what the MLB's... MLBPAs, the Players Association's uh, proposal was that the season begin on July 19th, wrap up on September 30th. There would be 70 games. Uh, there would be $50 million in playoff bonuses, 50-50 split of new postseason TV revenues in 2021, actually next year. Universal DH for this season. Ugh, but we do what we have to do. Um, Etc. So, you know, um, person writing this piece points out, you know, it's going to take a week to get things together. They're going to probably need about three weeks for spring training. So things really, really need to be moving here. Um, so the argument uh, really has to stop. And these guys need to come to an agreement. You know, we're, I guess we're at, uh, uh, what are we, at 60 on one side and 60 games on one side and 
70 games on the other. I mean, the more games, the better from a fan perspective for me. Uh, I want to see my Cincinnati Reds play, darn it. I mean, we, <laughs> we I was ready for this season in terms of the lineup. Go back and listen to uh, my conversation with Tom Brenneman um, a few episodes back. Um, he's the Reds announcer, um, and, and check that interview out. But um, the Reds have made some great additions, and they're going to be competitive this year. So, darn it, I want to see baseball. So, hopefully, you know, if it means that they come in and split the difference, 65 games, um, you know, that's close enough. It's almost a half season. And, uh, heck, give me whatever you can, folks. I want to, I want to see baseball, um, and I'm not alone. So, there you go. That's, let's finish up on a positive point that I'm sure baseball is going to happen. They're going to come to an agreement. Uh, what am I basing this on? Nothing more than I want baseball. <laughs> so anyway, let's see what happens. By the way, uh, again, if you're missing baseball, please read Murderer's Row, Pastor Stephen Grant novel. In that book, I, I serve up all sorts of interesting characters, adventure. There's a there's a murder mystery. There's faith, politics. There's humor, and yeah, there's baseball. Um, I, you know, I enjoy, I really liked bringing baseball into the world of Pastor Stephen Grant, his family, friends, former CIA colleagues. Um, remember that Pastor Stephen Grant is a former Navy SEAL. He was a former uh, CIA operative, and now he is a pastor on Long Island. So I hope readers uh, have as much fun reading all these books as I did writing them, but particularly at this time of year when we're looking for baseball, uh, particularly Murderer's Row. Uh, one Amazon reviewer said, I love this uh, quote. Uh, I believe it's a five-star review. Uh, the bottom of the ninth, uh, and our writer is up to bat. The pitch is hang a hanging curve, and is a hanging curve that Keating takes over the wall. The writing was crisp, action-packed, and with a good story, nicely done. Well, thank you, Mr. Amazon.com reviewer. Uh, by the way, uh, on average, Murderer's Row gets 4.6 out of five stars among those Amazon reviewers. So, uh, Murderer's Row, it's available in trade paperback or for the Kindle, again, at Amazon.com. Sign books over at RayKeatingOnline.com. Get your baseball fix with mystery murder and some mayhem thrown in. Get it today. And you know what? Right now, we've still got a sale going on on the Kindle editions. It's only $2.99. In fact, all of the Pastor Stephen Grant novels, each and every one, only $2.99 for the Kindle edition over at Amazon.com. Folks, thanks for listening. Uh, again, to another Press Club Seat podcast. Um, your feedback and suggestions are welcome. Please check out my, my various endeavors and books, including columns over at KeatingFiles.com, my other podcast, Free Enterprise in Three Minutes, my latest um, nonfiction book, Behind Enemy Lines, Conservative Communiques from Left-Wing New York. Also, my other recent uh, nonfiction book, Free Trade Rocks. That's right. I, I just, I don't not, not only dip my toes and talk about immigration, but I also talk about trade. Um, so check that out. Uh, Ten points everyone should know uh, about international trade. Also, all the Pastor Stephen Grant novels, as I mentioned. Uh, to my to-do list solution planners are still available at Amazon.com and RayKeatingOnline.com. There are several months left in 2020, folks, so you might be able to use them. Um, and please check out DisneyBizJournal.com for some interesting stuff on the Disney entertainment business. Folks, again, thanks so much for listening. Uh, take care. God bless.